I went out there this morning and I was like, ooh, it's a little too hot. I'm going to come back in here. It's nice and cool. Uh, well, good morning, Christian Fellowship. Uh, it's good to be back here for another week, but don't worry. Tim will be up here next week. He's actually free uh, to be here this morning because of the governor's orders that uh, Wisconsin's off the quarantine list. So I'm glad to have him here. I'm also more terrified now because I can see him now. <laughs> um, but I wanted to take some time to say thank you for welcoming me into your congregation for these two weeks. Uh, you've been friendly and kind, and I sincerely appreciate your hospitality and the feeling of this community. Uh, it's, really, it's really awesome, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, just as we did last week, I want to preach from the lectionary. Um, there are a lot of good readings this week, and you heard some of them already this morning. Uh, Psalm 124, which we read first, praises God for looking on his people and rescuing them. And it says, if the Lord wasn't on our side, we would have been defeated by our enemies. Romans 12, which we didn't have the chance to read yet, uh, calls the church to be transformed into actually living out our calling as Christ's body, uh, to act faithfully in service to God. Uh, and Matthew 16 declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who will save us all from our slavery to sin. As we go through the Old Testament passage this week, uh, Exodus 1.8 through 2.10, you may notice some of those themes come into play. Um, but before we dive in, I want to pray for the remainder of our service. Lord God, uh, thank you for getting us, uh, giving us a chance to meet together for one service this week. Uh, thank you that we all get to gather together safely, um, socially distance, um, and just have a chance to worship you together uh, as a full body. Uh, thank you for all that you do. Thank, th thank you for all you're doing in this church. And Father, give us the chance to participate in whatever you're doing, however you're moving. Um, and for the remainder of this service, Lord, teach us something about you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, so again, our passage is from Exodus 1.8 through 2.10. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV when I do it, um, so a little bit different from the Bibles in the pew. Uh, but we're going to read through it as we go. I'm not going to start with it. I'm just going to read through it as we go, and I'll make comments along the way. Uh, but just like last week, I want to start with a little bit of background before uh, we get to the passage, because you need to know the full extent of what's going on here we need to know what came before it. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And even though we're at the beginning of Exodus, this actually drops us in the middle of a story. So we need to go back to the first book, Genesis, to get an understanding of what's going on. Now, some of you may know this story already. Uh, but in Genesis, God creates the world. He creates people within it. And everything is good. The people, however, do bad things and keep making chaos out of God's perfect order. So God tries a couple different methods for getting the people to follow him, uh, including sending a flood to cover the whole earth. Basically a reset button, except that he commands one man, Noah, to build an ark to withstand the flood so that Noah, his family, and all the animals God brings to the ark are saved from the flood. After that, however, things don't improve for humanity. They still follow their own way, so God ultimately settles on one man, one person, Abram, to be God's person on the earth, the, God, the person that God will communicate with. 
He promises Abram that he will bless him with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, even though he doesn't have any kids in his old age. And eventually, God comes through, and Abram, who gets renamed Abraham, has a son named Isaac, and God's promise to Abraham continues through Isaac. He also promises Abraham that that his descendants will dwell in the land that he is currently in, which is the land of Canaan. So, with me so far. So, two promises to Abraham. One, he's going to have a lot of descendants, and two, they're going to live in the land of Canaan. Two-part promise. Isaac, his son, then has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And without getting into too much detail, Jacob ends up having 12 sons with multiple wives. Jacob loves his second wife, Rachel, more than he loves his first wife, Leah. So Jacob's favorite son is Rachel's firstborn, Joseph. Now Joseph is the second youngest of all of his brothers, but because he is the favorite, he is also the cockiest and the most proud. Because of that, his brothers eventually tie him up and sell him into slavery without his father's knowledge. Joseph ends up in the land of Egypt as a slave, and he goes through some hard stuff, uh, but eventually he becomes second in command to Pharaoh himself because of his ability to interpret a dream that Pharaoh has. He is tasked with getting the Egyptians to preserve as much food as they can so that they will have plenty when seven years of famine hit later. When the famine does come, Jacob asks his sons to go down to Egypt because he has heard that they have plenty of food. So Joseph's brothers show up to Egypt and they do not recognize Joseph. So he tests them to see if they have changed and are worthy of his help. And eventually, Joseph sees that they have changed. He reveals himself to them and he tells them to go get his father and the rest of their family and move down to Egypt with him so he can provide for them. So the entire clan heads down to Egypt, and that is where they stay for many years, which is where our story picks up in Exodus. Now I know that's a lot, and some of you may know that story already, but it is a crucial one for the context here. When Exodus begins, only one of the two promises God made to Abraham is actually being met. Abraham's descendants, according to Exodus 1-7, are exceedingly fruitful which fulfills God's promise to Abraham of numerous descendants. But they are not in the land God promised them. They are living in Egypt, not in the land of Canaan, and that causes problems. So we're going to pick it up beginning in verse 8. So chapter 1, verse 8 of Exodus, if you want to follow along. It'll be up on the screen too. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. First thing I want to mention here is that this new king, or new pharaoh, does not know Joseph, literally in the Hebrew. The word for no is yada, which is sometimes used in the Old Testament as a euphemism for sleeping with someone. So Jacob knew his wife, Rachel. Isaac knew his wife, Rebekah. So the word yada is much more than just head knowledge or just knowing about someone. 
It connotates a personal understanding of someone else, sometimes deeply intimate. What is being said is that the new Pharaoh does not care about Joseph's descendants. He does, to him, Joseph and his descendants mean nothing, which is what the verse says here. There is no relationship whatsoever between them. Because of this, Pharaoh sees them not as the human beings that they are, but as a threat to his rule. He is afraid of them, so he uses them for his own ends. He abuses them, so they will not rise up and overtake him. He enslaves them. Now, for a deeper level of understanding here, in the Egyptian worldview, the Pharaoh is considered to be a god incarnate on the earth. He is a divine authority figure whom the other gods of Egypt work through. This worldly deity does not know the Israelites and is in fact afraid of them. So in the minds of the first people reading this story, this isn't about a man enslaving them. This is about a god enslaving them. And since it is a god enslaving them, it's going to take God the true God, the only God, to free them. The next thing I want to mention is exactly why he oppresses them. They are too great of a number. There are too many of them. And even as he oppressed them, verse 12 says, the more they multiplied and spread. He works them harder and harder, but he cannot stop their growth. He cannot stop their blessings. Because remember that God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And here God is fulfilling that promise, much to the fear of this so-called other God. The Israelites are inheriting one part because they are in the land of Egypt and not in the land of Canaan, which is the second part of the blessing, the promise. They are feared and therefore they are oppressed. The gods of this world, such as Pharaoh, do not like it when people, especially the people of God, thrive. The true God, on the other hand, desires that all should thrive. While God, while Pharaoh himself oppresses, God sets free. So my first point is this. God cares about and is with the oppressed. The fact that the Israelites continue to multiply is proof of God's presence with them, even in their suffering. What is more, I want to quickly jump to chapter 2 of Exodus, verses 23 through 25, which say this, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Verse 25 here in the NIV says, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them, which doesn't capture the full picture of what the text is trying to tell us. Because the word there at the end, yada, is no. It's the same word that... Pharaoh didn't know. God knows. Literally, God looked on the Israelites and God knew. God knew the Israelites. God cared about them. 
God is intimately connected with them. The gods of this world, whatever imposters they may be, do not know us and they do not care about us. But our God, the living God, does know us. Those whom society puts down, God sees them, God hears them, and God is with them. The God of Egypt, Pharaoh, does not know the Israelites, but the true God does. Our God is not like the other gods. Amen? So let's continue. The king of Egypt, uh, this is verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So in verse 15, Pharaoh decides that he needs to stop this multiplying at its source, or what he thinks is its source, the birth of the Israelites. He instructs two midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill the boys when they are born, but they do not listen. The Bible is hilarious sometimes, and this is one of those passages. So let me explain. You see, in Scripture, names are very important. They almost always have double or triple meanings, and they almost always signify the importance of a given person. They let us know their character. Names are vital to stories. So when someone's name doesn't appear, it usually means something. Last week, we talked about the Canaanite woman of Matthew 15, but we never got her name. She's just called the Canaanite woman, which I think highlights the greatness of her faith because she was a nobody, and yet she understood Jesus better than the disciples. In this passage, the Hebrew midwives are actually named Shifra and Pua. First of all, the term Hebrew here does not necessarily mean Israelite or a descendant of Abraham. Many scholars say this is a slang term to talk about the bottom of the barrel in Egyptian society, those who were not Egyptians, which the Israelites would have been a part of. It might not have been too different from the way that white Americans used to refer to slaves in this country, just to put that in context. That's what they're called. So the next question becomes, are these actual Hebrew midwives? in which case they are the very bottom of society, being women among the lowest people group. Or another way it could be translated is that they are midwives to the Hebrews, um, in which case they could be Egyptian women tasked with working with the lowest in society. Either way, Shifra and Pua are nobodies in this society. Their names would not be known to any Egyptians, and much less Pharaoh, and yet here they are in Scripture thousands of years later, and we know their names. The funny part about this is you know whose name is not mentioned here? Pharaoh. Scholars have been debating this question for hundreds of years about who exactly this Pharaoh is because they want to know when it happened. But we don't know who it is because God was like, meh, I'm not going to mention him. 
I'm telling you, God has a sense of humor, and it is awesome when we see it. So moving on to verse 18. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Now, one of the issues that some people have with this passage is the fact that the midwives seem to lie here. Verse 17 says that they deliberately did not do what Pharaoh commanded. But in verse 19, they claim that they just don't arrive in time. Now, they aren't necessarily lying here. Scripture doesn't make it entirely clear. We don't know for sure. But there is definitely a possibility, and when I read the text, that's what I see. I think they're lying here. So I want to address this question for those of you who might have it. Is it okay to lie in some cases if lying means following God? My response to you is that there is no greater truth in the universe than our God. Amen? God himself is truth. Capital T. Even if these women lie to Pharaoh, their actions in refusing his commands and quite frankly deceiving him and thwarting his plans show that they are following the truth. Capital T. In God. They follow the true God and not the God of Egypt. To give in to the will of Pharaoh is to deny the truth. It is to lie about who is in control. Now, this does not mean that we get to lie as long as it's for Jesus, whatever that means. There's a lot of gray area there. And this situation is incredibly important. And it's more about the faith of these two women than anything else. What Shifra and Pua do here is stand up against something that is anti-God. This is the same situation that Rahab finds herself in when she hides the Israelite spies from the Jericho authorities in the book of Joshua. Standing up to forces that go against the will of God is to stand up for truth. Shifra and Pua do not budge, and therefore God blesses them. For us here in this room and watching online, God is moving as we speak. God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. So we must ask ourselves, are we a part of it? Are we moving where God is moving? Do our actions line up with God's actions? It could be as big as getting involved in a protest for human rights. Or it could be as small as sitting with someone you know who is in pain. So a quick personal story. When I was in college, I was a resident assistant, an RA, and my job was to talk with new students on my floor, get to know them, build relationships. The problem is that I was introverted, and I do not like meeting new people. I literally sat in my room crying one night to figure out how to step out of my comfort zone and do this. So one day, I worked up the courage to go to the door of a couple soccer players that I had never met. On their door was a sign that said Team Jewels on it. 
And I was able to ask one of the guys what that meant, and he said, oh, it's from the TV show, Psych. Church, Psych is my favorite TV show. So that night, I was in their room for a couple hours watching Psych, getting to know them. And I still meet with one of those guys every week for a book study and breakfast. He is one of my best and closest friends. If I had stayed in my room that night, I would have missed out on what God was doing, how easy God was making it for me. God is moving, and sometimes all we have is put our raft in the current and we get whisked away into whatever God is doing for us. He is doing all Take a step. So look for those moments and those opportunities. I got blessed because I took a step. And with Shifra and Pua, they get blessed. They get a part of the blessing because they get families of their own because of what they did to help the Hebrew babies. So look for those opportunities in your own life. So on to our last point, And I want to pick up in the last verse of chapter 1, which is verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw in the Nile, but let every girl live. Now this is the second time Pharaoh has given this command, but now he gives it to all the Egyptians. Everyone, not just the midwives now, are accountable to Pharaoh. They are told that when they find a newborn Hebrew boy, to throw him in the Nile River. So why just the boys? The belief is that the men are the strong ones, and they are the ones who will fight if a war ever breaks out. If you can slow the male population, you can keep the number of threats down. That's the theory, anyway. One that Pharaoh should know by now is absolutely false. But he's about to find out even more so how. So we continue in chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, there are four characters in this story. There's a husband, a wife, a newborn boy, and the boy's older sister. We get none of their names yet, although we will get some of them later. But we never get the sister's name, although a lot of people think this is Miriam. The text doesn't say, but what's important here is that of the four characters, two of them are active, while two of them are passive. The active ones the mom, and her daughter. The girls and not the boys are the active players in this story. It is the mom who deliberately defies Pharaoh's order, putting her own life at risk to save her child. And while it doesn't say the sister's age, nor does it say how long Pharaoh's edict has been going on, I think there's enough to say that this has been going on for quite a few years, And I think this daughter was probably born during Pharaoh's edict and was spared because of the fact that she is a girl, a fact that Pharaoh will come to regret. 
The second aspect of this story is the fact that when his mother can hide him no more, she places her son in a papyrus basket and puts him in the river. Papyrus basket is actually a phrase that's used only one other time in Scripture, and it describes Noah's ark in Genesis. That's right. Noah's ark was God's way of saving humanity from a flood that covered the whole earth. And right here, it is God's way of saving his people. Here is God's salvation. It is in a baby on a tiny ark floating on the Nile River. So continuing in verse 5, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Real quick note here. Pharaoh's daughter, we don't get her name either because what is important is that she is Pharaoh's daughter. While Pharaoh himself oppresses the Israelites, his own daughter looks on this baby with pity and mercy. While Pharaoh is commanding that Hebrew boys get thrown into the Nile, his daughter pulls out a Hebrew boy to save him. Pharaoh's daughter helps bring about Pharaoh's downfall. I just think that's funny. Verse 7, Then his sister asks Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So my last point is this. God subverts our understandings to bring salvation. Pharaoh thought that killing the Hebrew boys would be enough to quell a rebellion. So God used a Hebrew girl, Moses' sister, to initiate his salvation plan. She is the one who goes to Pharaoh's daughter and provides a way for the baby to live. In fact, every single person who acts in this story to save baby Moses, his mom, his sister, Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter's slave, are women. Shifra and Pua are women. In a patriarchal society where women are not people but property, it is women who are the faithful actors in God's salvation plan. And this is consistent with God's character, be that in Rahab, Ruth, Mary the mother of Jesus, and so many others, in that God's salvation comes through those whom society does not even notice. Another way that God subverts our understandings to bring salvation is that God uses for salvation what the world uses for destruction. Did you notice that Moses' mom actually follows Pharaoh's order when she puts her baby in the Nile? And it is her action 
of putting her son in the Nile that actually leads not only to his salvation, but the salvation of all the Israelites. Something that was supposed to kill Moses ends up being the vehicle of salvation. Church. That's the cross. The cross was used as a weapon of shame and humiliation by an oppressive empire. It was meant to strike fear in the hearts of all who saw it and cause rebellious people to submit to the authority of Rome. It is through that disgusting mechanism that God brings about the salvation of all humanity. The things the world uses to destroy us, God uses to save us. And remember how I mentioned the importance of names in Scripture? Well, Moses' name means to draw out. It is not a coincidence that it is Moses who draws out the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and leads them on a journey to the promised land of Canaan, to the second part of the blessing. Moses is the savior of the Israelites and is an example of what Christ ultimately does, saving all of humanity from the slavery of sin. And just as Moses draws out the Israelites away from slavery and into new life, so Jesus calls us to follow him out of sin and into a free and reborn life. God's character and the way God saves has always been the same. We do not need to meet any standard to be worthy of God's love or his salvation God already knows us and loves us deeply. He is calling us out of our slavery to sin and has made a way for us to leave Egypt behind. And that way is Jesus. And if we believe that, then we must know that God is calling us to walk with Him in faithfulness, looking out for ways to get involved with what God is doing right here and right now. If you truly believe that Jesus is the only way out of slavery and to freedom, and if you truly want to know God in the same way that God knows you, trust me when I say that it will change your life. You will look different. You will never be the same. God is greater than anything we can imagine, and it is stories like this that open my eyes just to how wonderful and how faithful God truly is. As we take communion, I want you to reflect on God's faithfulness to us and to you personally. God knows us. God knows. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for knowing us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for stories like this that give us the chance to see you better, to know you better. Thank you for having a sense of humor, that we get to laugh with you, that we get to be with you, that we get to learn from you and about you. Lord, most of all, thank you for your son. Thank you for the chance to share in Christ's body and share in his blood. Thank you for saving us. 
And thank you for leading us out of slavery. God, you are too good. You are too awesome. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.